reading from Exodus chapter 3 and beginning at the first verse. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, 
the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbour and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians." Have you ever thought about what an amazing book the Bible is? In this book, the God of the universe speaks to us. He makes Himself known. When we read the Bible, we hear the voice of God. That really is incredible, isn't it? And yet it seems such an ordinary thing to do. You open the book and you read it. How many times has someone stood up to read the Bible in church and before they've said two sentences, you're thinking about Sunday lunch. I, I know I do. Today, as we turn to Exodus, we're going to listen in on a conversation uh, between God and a man named Moses. Uh, God challenged Moses to respond to him. God made himself known and challenged Moses to respond. And as we listen in, he gives us the same challenge. When God makes himself known to us, how will we respond? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Please, this morning, give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you'll find it helpful to have a Bible open at the Exodus chapter 3, um, as we resume my very, very occasional series in Exodus. I think in the four years I've been part of this church, this is my fifth talk on Exodus. So, it's, <laughs> when I say occasional, I mean it. Um, as you turn there, let me just recap the story so far. Uh, the book of Exodus is the story of God keeping His promises to Abraham. Uh, you probably remember the incredible promises that God made to Abraham. He promised Abraham that his descendants would be an uncountable multitude. He promised Abraham that they would have a land of their own, the land of Canaan, where there would be peace. And most important of all, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be blessed by God and that through them, God would bless the entire world. All the peoples of the world would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. Uh, Exodus chapter 1 is the story of Abraham's descendants moving to Egypt, fleeing Canaan from a famine, uh, and in Egypt, over 400 years, they became an uncountable multitude. God kept His first promise, but the number of Israelites scared the king of Egypt, and so He enslaved them. He set them to work. He tried to reduce their numbers through genocide. How on earth could God possibly keep His promises in the face of that? Exodus chapter 2 began hopefully, because God so arranged the situation uh, that an Israelite baby became the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. Uh, his name was Moses, uh, and maybe, maybe Moses could bring about salvation for His people and bring about God's promises because he's got connections in the palace. Well, no. 
Moses was a failure. He tried to save one of his own people from a slave master. He was, you know, he was, he was being beaten by the slave master and Moses tried to save him. Unfortunately, things got out of hand and Moses accidentally killed the slave master and so he hid the body in the sand. But this, it got out as this, these things have a way of doing and so Moses had to flee for his life. He ended up living as a stranger in the faraway land of Midian and he, he, he met a girl, he settled down, he started a family but he just felt like a stranger. He was a total failure as a saviour. But there was still hope because the, chapter 2 closes with the groaning of the Israelites and their cries for help coming up before God and we hear that God was concerned for them. And so that leaves us with the question, what will God do? What will He do about the slavery of His own people and their misery? How on earth will He ever bring about His promises to Abraham? Let's pick up the story today in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It opens on Moses in the wilderness, working as a shepherd. He's just been getting on with life. Something like 40 years has passed. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. See, the narrator tells us where this event takes place. It's at God's mountain. It's better known as Mount Sinai, and it'll come up again significantly in the book. Uh, but Moses has no idea. As far as he knows, he's all alone, deep in the wilderness, looking for grass. But then out of nowhere, God did something to make Himself known. Look at verse 2 with me. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. He saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. How long do you think it took Moses to realise something strange was going on here? Ah, oh, there's a bush on fire. That bush is still on fire. Oh. What, what is going on here? How is that bush still burning? It's the kind of thing, you see a fire and you don't automatically assume something supernatural, do you? But no matter how long Moses looked, the bush did not burn up. See, God can upend the normal way things happen. God has, has creation under His control. This is a major theme going forward in the book. Uh, bushes on fire do not normally remain unscorched. But then neither do rivers turn into blood. Frogs and flies and locusts do not normally form armies and invade nations. Gnats don't normally turn, uh, become out of dust. Hail and darkness only fall on command very rarely and only if you have very, very good timing. And seas almost never form stable walls of water. And yet all of these things happen in the book of Exodus. See, the God who appeared to Moses has the natural order under control. He can and does upend the usual way of things because He can do whatever He pleases. He is the one and only God who made it all. He was doing something here to make Himself known to Moses. How would Moses respond? And in the following verses, there are eight responses from Moses. We're just going to look at the first four today. I'll save the other four for another time. Um, but as we consider Moses' reaction to God making Himself known, there's a challenge for us too. Because God has made Himself known to us. 
And so how will we respond? Let's look at Moses' first response, verse 3. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? Now that's a pretty obvious first step, isn't it? You see a strange thing and so you go and check it out. And when God makes himself known, that's the first thing to do. Check it out. Look closer. Draw near. Seek to understand what God is making known. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moses had come over casually to check out this strange sight, but now he finds himself addressed by the holy God, uh, addressed by name, ordered to stop and to take off his shoes, uh, which is a very standard Middle Eastern way of showing respect. I have no idea why, perhaps Bassam might be able to help you. Uh, But Moses was in the presence of the holy God. He must show respect and come no closer because he does not deserve to be there. Uh, The holy God goes on to reveal his identity. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Uh, The God who was speaking to Moses through flames of fire is the God of Moses' own father, Amram. Uh, He's the God of Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And straight away, Moses knew what to do. Don't look. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? He's gone over casually to have a look, and now all of a sudden, he's so terrified, he can't look anymore. Which is a wise response, actually. It's a wise response to encountering God. How does the book of Proverbs put it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you encounter God, it is right to be fearful, to be careful, to be respectful, because no one can see God and live. He is not like us. He is powerful and other, and to come near Him is dangerous. We're pretty comfortable around God. Uh, We have confidence in Christ to approach Him, but I think sometimes that means we treat God a little bit too casually. And that's dangerous. It's risky to come near God. He is the one who made everything. He can unmake it like that. Moses is right to be afraid of God. It's kind of like when you're driving in a car and you see a policeman and... (gasps) Just that little shock of adrenaline that pumps through you. Do you know that feeling? You don't intend to do anything wrong. You're not breaking the road rules, but there's just this spike of adrenaline, an appropriate reverent fear, a respect for the task of policing. Uh, It's a little bit like that, only more so. Uh, It's right and respectful. Uh, It's right to be respectful and cautious around God. And yet this... This this, uh, appropriate awe actually amplifies for us the wonder of the gospel. Uh, Because the God who says to Moses, stop, don't come any closer, is the same God who invites us to call us His, uh, invites us to call Him our own Father. On the one hand, don't come any closer, and on the other, my dear children. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, Next, having set the tone of this conversation, God revealed His intentions to Moses. 
Um, I'll, I'll summarize the next few verses for you. Uh, God has seen and heard the misery of His people in Egypt. He knows their suffering. And so God Himself has come down to keep His promises to Abraham. Already the Israelites are as many as the stars in the sky. And God here uh, reiterates His second promise, a land, good and wide, flowing with milk and honey. The land that he, Oh wait, no, flowing, it's this one, isn't it? I, I can't even do it. Now, the, the land that God promised to Abraham, He's come down to give it to them. God Himself will rescue His people out of Egypt. But then there's a surprise twist for Moses, verse 10. So now, go, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. As if Moses hasn't had enough shocks for one day. He thought he was all alone in the desert, and then suddenly he found himself in the presence of the holy God, and now he's been given a task to do, one he's already failed at before. Uh, Forty years earlier, Moses had tried to save one of his own people and failed. He'd stuffed up, killed a man, and had to run for his life, and he's been on the run ever since. Now, Moses is being asked to save not one Israelite, but the whole uncountable bloomin' lot of them. And it's a task that Moses knew he was utterly un, uh, unworthy to perform. Because look at how he responds next in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? That's a reasonable response, isn't it? Moses knew that he was unworthy. Saving people is God's business. It should not be a human responsibility. And God Himself has just said that He has come down to save His people out of Egypt. What business does have being a part of that? Moses isn't God. He can't be the one to save Israel out of Egypt. He's too unworthy to be involved. Well, God's response to Moses involves a bit of a play on words. Um, the more you read of the Old Testament, the more you realise that God loves wordplay. Uh, scattered throughout the Hebrew Bible, little clever word plays um, that, that go to the heart of what's going on in the chapter. Uh, here, the word play is around uh, the, the word I, as in I am. Uh, Moses asks God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And in verse 12, God's answer is, I am with you. Uh, or as your, your translation has it, uh, I will be with you. The terms are the same in Hebrew, I am and I will be. Same thing, Moses asks, who am I that I should go? God says, I am with you. Moses was right, he was utterly unworthy and unable to save God's people out of Egypt. But he would not be the I that saved Israel. I am would be with him and I am would do the saving. And yet, despite this reassurance, Moses was still a bit worried. He was worried about the reaction from his own people. Because they were going to want some kind of validation to prove that Moses was worth listening to. Because uh, if they knew anything about Moses by this point, they knew that he'd grown up an Egyptian, and that he'd been a fugitive from justice for 40 years. Not exactly the most reliable messenger, is he? Not the kind of guy that you're really going to want to listen to. Uh, and so Moses anticipates a question that he thinks that they might ask. What is God's name? Verse 13, Moses said to God, Suppose I do go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Well, then what shall I say to them? 
Moses' fourth response was to seek to know more clearly the identity of the God of his ancestors. If Moses has a clear answer to that, uh, it would validate him to the elders of Israel, maybe. And in his answer, God continues the wordplay on I. Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses asked, suppose I go, what shall I tell them? And God's answer is that I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Who is the I who will save God's people? Not Moses, but God. And his name is I am. But then this wordplay develops a little bit further in the next verse. As God clarifies just who he am with a longer, fuller statement of his name. Have a look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now, if you look at that, you might be wondering where the wordplay is. It's not really obvious. Um, this is one of those points that reminds us that the Bible was not originally in English. We're reading a translation. Uh, it's an excellent translation, uh, but it's pretty hard to translate something perfectly. You take an idea in one language uh, and move the, not just the words, but the concepts into another language, it's almost impossible to do perfectly. Just occasionally, you run across these spots where you have to just stop and look carefully. Um, have a look at verse 15, at the start of that, the start of God's statement. He says, the Lord... Can you see that in capital letters? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, when you see that in the Old Testament, the Lord, in all capitals, that's the translation of God's name. In Hebrew, God's name is spelt with four consonants. I've written this in your outline if you want to check it later. Uh, Y-H-W-H. But we don't know how to pronounce that name. At some point in the history of God's people, it was decided that the easiest way to make sure nobody ever blasphemed God's name was if nobody ever said God's name. And so the custom developed that when reading the Scriptures and when you got to God's name, you don't say God's name, you say instead, my Lord or the Lord. And so our English translators have continued that same practice. Whenever they came to God's name in the Old Testament, Instead of translating the name, they've put the Lord. Now, we don't actually know how to pronounce God's name. Uh, like most ancient languages in that part of the world at that time, ancient Hebrew did not have a way to write down vowels. They just wrote the consonants. Um, th they knew how to pronounce it, and so they didn't need to write them down. But the problem is that the people who knew how to pronounce God's name stopped saying God's name. And pretty quickly, it only takes about two generations before you forget how to say a word when no one ever says it, especially if it's not written down. So we don't know how to pronounce God's name at this point. Uh, one attempt at reconstruction that you've probably heard is Jehovah. Um, it's probably wrong. You can ask me why that is later, uh, if, if you're interested. Another reconstruction that you might have heard is Yahweh, but it's still an educated guess. Truth is, we don't know how to pronounce the name that God gives Moses at this point. But what we do know is what it means. And to be honest, what it means is far more important than the pronunciation. 
And here's where we come back to the wordplay. I, I promised there was wordplay. Uh, here it is. In verse 14, God calls himself, I am. In verse 15, where we have the Lord written, God is actually describing himself using a third person form of I am. Do you remember your persons? I am is first person. You are is second person. He is is the third person. The same thing, just in di- from different perspectives. So when God speaks about Himself, He calls Himself, I am. When the Israelites speak about who God is, they call Him, He is. See, that's the same name, just from a different perspective. And together, these two statements about God's identity work to throw us backward in time and forward in time. Because to know God's name is to know God as He has made Himself known. Uh, To know God as He has revealed Himself in the past, uh, and to know God as He will reveal Himself. He is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This statement throws us backwards in time to consider God's promises to His people, His prior commitment to the nation of Israel. He was with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the founding fathers of Israel. He was with them as their God. He is the one who made the incredible promises to Abraham 400 years before this conversation with Moses. He promised an uncountable people, a land of peace and blessing to them and to the whole world. So the people of Israel do not need to worry. They could trust this God because of His faithful love to their ancestors. He would keep the promises He had made. Just as He was there for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so He would be there for them too. And if that's who He is, and His promises that He made to Abraham find their fulfilment in Christ, which they do, then we too can rely on the faithful, promise-keeping love of God. Who is He? He is the faithful God who remembers His promises and He keeps them. The other statement, I am who I am, sends us forward in time. Because if we want to know who God am, we've got to pay attention to what He does from this point onwards. The things He does, the things He says, these show us who He am. And so when God says, I am who I am, uh, it propels us forward in time through the long history of God's people, His faithfulness to His people and His faithfulness to His promises. Again and again, the people of Israel proved faithless. They abandoned God again and again, and yet He was faithful. He dealt with their sin again and again. He forgave them again and again. He was determined to keep His promises to Abraham. And yet, the descendants of Abraham continued to turn their backs on Him. How would I am fix things so that He could deal with sin and keep His promises to Abraham? And so we come to Jesus, the great I am, born as a man. In John chapter 8, some Jews challenged Jesus about his identity, and he said this, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham had lived and died about 2,000 years prior to Jesus, and yet Jesus claimed to be before Abraham. 
That's a pretty remarkable historical claim. But even more remarkable was the reaction of his hearers, of his audience. See, at this, when, he's, when Jesus said, I am, they picked up stones to try and kill him. Because they knew he wasn't just claiming to be older than their, their founding father, Abraham. He was claiming to be, I am, their God. He had come down to save them. This time, not out of Egypt. No, this time he had come to save them from their sin, to turn them back to him, to turn them away from their own continual turning back on, uh, turning their backs on him. And yet, what was their response? Well, they tried to kill him. They turned away from him once again. On that day, they picked up rocks to throw at him. They failed to kill him that day, but pretty soon after, they succeeded with a cross. I am was determined to keep his promises, to save his people. His name, I am who I am, throws us forward in time to the crucifixion, where the great I am entered the grave to take upon himself the consequences of sin, the wages of sin, death, to bring the blessing of true forgiveness to his own people and to all the peoples of the world. And after three days, He rose again, so that along with forgiveness, He might also give eternal life. The great I Am had promised that He would bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And in Jesus, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, He finally kept that promise. He has dealt with sin. He has dealt with our sin. He has brought forgiveness and new life to all who respond by turning to Him. God's name, I am who I am, even pushes us further forward in time, beyond our day, to the end of time. You can read a bit about it in the book of Revelation. Then sin and evil will be no more. We will dwell with God. No longer will we have to hide our faces from God in fear. We will see His face for all eternity. We will know Him as we are truly known now. Now, coming back to Exodus 3. Now, for the rest of the chapter, the great I Am makes known His awareness and control of all things. He instructed Moses in what to do next. Um, God knew the details of these future events because He is the one who determined them. Uh, let me summarise them quickly. Moses was to return to Egypt, gather the elders of Israel and tell them that He is the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, had not forgotten His promises. God knew what had happened to them. God would take them to the land He had promised. And despite Moses' fear that they wouldn't believe Him, the elders of Israel would believe Him. And then he and they together would go to the king of Egypt and request permission to leave the country in order to worship their God. But unlike the elders of Israel, Pharaoh would not listen, not unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so that is what God would do. He would stretch out his hand uh, and with wonders he would strike Egypt. And after that, the Pharaoh would let them go. And when they went, Israel would take the wealth of Egypt with them 
every woman was to ask her neighbour for gold and silver and fine clothing, and the Egyptians would gladly give it. Now, normally when a city or a nation gets plundered, it's done by armed men. But the defeat of Egypt by God would be so complete that the women of Israel would be able to carry off the wealth of Egypt just by asking. Can I have some gold, please? Oh, yep, sure, here's my necklace. They just hand it over. In these verses, God outlines, God reveals His awareness and control of all things. Um, These verses are a summary of the next 10 chapters of the book. Uh, The great I Am is able to predict what will happen because He is the one who causes it to happen. He's not just aware of what will happen next, He's in control of what will happen next. Who is God to you? Do the things you believe about God actually correspond with what He's revealed about Himself? Or have you idolised God? Have you reimagined God in a way that suits you? A God who is as you like to think of Him? Think about some of the things that uh, God has just revealed about Himself. He allowed His people to be enslaved in Egypt. He would expel multiple people groups from the land of Canaan because of their intergenerational sin in order to bring His own people into that land. He would force the king of Egypt to obey Him. He would so arrange things that His people would plunder Egypt. He gave Moses little choice but to do as he was told. Is that how you like to think of God? He is the sovereign Lord. He's not just aware of what will happen. He causes it to happen. He's responsible. He is in control and He's not a... God has acted to make Himself known. Will you accept God as He reveals Himself? Or will you insist on a God who suits you? We'll leave the story there for today. I want to finish by uh, today by encouraging you to be like Moses. Because Moses eventually did what God told him to do. He went back to Egypt. Uh, God made Himself and His plans known to Moses, and Moses listened, and he understood what God was asking. And then he responded with real concerns and worries and feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy. And gradually, Moses allowed God to deal with his concerns. He allowed God to convince him. Despite his reservations and reluctance, Moses eventually set out to fulfil the mission that God gave him. Be like Moses. There are ways that God wants to use you that you may be reluctant to undertake. Teaching, showing hospitality to others, opening the Bible one-to-one with a friend, forgiving your neighbour or sister or your work colleague and seeking genuine reconciliation. Perhaps you feel unworthy. Perhaps you feel incapable. Perhaps you just don't want to. Be like Moses. Tell God how you feel. Be willing to let God change your mind. Don't buy the lie that God only uses worthy and capable people. Moses didn't feel worthy of the task given him by God. 
because he wasn't worthy. He was not the right man for the job. He was a wanted criminal. He was a coward who did his best to wriggle out from what God was asking him to do. The only thing that made Moses suitable for the task was God's presence with him. God doesn't choose worthy people to bring about His purposes. He chooses unworthy people and He works in them and through them to bring about His plans. That way it's totally clear who's responsible. God has made Himself known. So be like Moses. Respond by drawing near to Him in Christ and letting Him convince you to obey. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Please give us minds to understand it and hearts to obey it. And we praise You for our Lord Jesus and for the way He has dealt with our sin. And we praise You for how that enables us to come to You with confidence. Please, Lord, help us to treat You respectfully and to listen to what You make known about Yourself, to not reimagine You as we see fit. Father, thank You that You deal with us in all our humanity. You're aware of our weaknesses and our fears and our failings. Thank You that You forgive us and change us. And so, Lord, please cause each one of us to hear Your voice, to draw near to You. Please make Yourself known to us. Please convince us to obey. In Jesus' name, Amen.